Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, your weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show... How would new Facebook regulations change the way we post, even for President Trump? So the board will have binding authority over what content is allowed and what's not. They're going to make the final call on some of the hardest decisions. And why chemists are on the hunt for a new pigment, the reddest red yet. So a lot of people don't realize that there can be a lot of money in reds. In fact, one sort of famous creator of the Ferrari red didn't really realize that there was money in this at all. He published his findings several decades ago. And in fact, the people who've made the money from Ferrari red are not the creators at all. They're people who spotted the commercial opportunity. But first... Fifty years ago this month, humanity's perception of the Earth and the heavens changed forever when Neil Armstrong left the lunar module and took one small step onto the surface of the moon. He was the first human ever to do so. But the Apollo 11 mission signaled an apex in the space race and America's ambitions. Since then, humankind has ventured only as far as the International Space Station, still safely in Earth's orbit. But this may be about to change. The Economist Briefings editor, Oliver Morton, is the author of The Moon, A History for the Future. And he has been thinking about what the next 50 years may hold. Hello, Oliver. Hi, Ken. Oliver, this week the Apollo 11 celebrates its 50th anniversary. Can you tell us about the mission? The mission uh, is only incidentally about the moon. The Apollo program is designed to show that America can marshal its economy and its technology to do great things. The fact that the great thing that was hit upon was going to the moon was not entirely coincidental, but was certainly not central. And so America does something that no one else has done before, that many people have not even been capable of imagining and changes something fundamental in showing people a human footprint on an inhuman celestial body. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Okay, I just checked uh, getting back up to that first step. Uh, it's uh, that doesn't collapse too far, but uh, it's been that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So why haven't we gone back? Because the mission was accomplished, because showing people that America could do this was the point. Doing it was less the point. Going on doing it was hardly the point at all. And so many people sort of like had this idea that now humans would, quote, 
colonize the rest of the solar system and that using the resources of the moon would take up the rest of the century and that then people would move on to Mars and to the moons of Jupiter. But this was all fantasy. And so that's why we haven't gone back. That's why no one has gone back, because no one has wanted to signal to the world what America wanted to signal to the world in the 1960s. It seems like today that's changing, that there are people who want to do such signaling. Do you think there'll be a new space race? I'm not even sure there was a first space race. The Russians were nothing like as serious about getting to the moon as the Americans were. So it was declared a race um, because the Americans were fairly confident of winning it. If you saw the space race in terms of who actually kept people in orbit longest, then the Russians were, uh, the Soviet Union was doing very well. So your question about going back to the moon, yes, the people are undoubtedly going back to the moon. But it's not for the same sort of signaling because going to the moon with the technology of 2019 is a significantly easier task than going to the moon with the technology of 1969. And although NASA is hobbled by the strange political constraints it finds itself in about what hardware it can use, it's still only going to take about a tenth of what it spent to go to the moon the first time to go to the moon a second time. The Chinese, who clearly would quite like to go to the moon, will go there by building out a human spaceflight program slowly and surely, which is what they've been doing for the past 15 years. So, yes, people will go back to the moon and people will try for their own reasons to present it as a space race. But I don't think that it's really a race. So other than the Chinese, what other nations are going to vie to get there? The Chinese are interested in going, so the Americans feel, or some Americans feel, that they need to go back so that they can, you know, sort of like refuse to trade in moon rocks with the Chinese when they arrive. I think other nations are unlikely to go in the near term, though I'm sure India would in the longer term be quite interested in going. The other thing, of course, is that private individuals and private companies might go. SpaceX has already sold a provisional trip to the moon to go around the moon, not to actually land on the moon, to... Um, a Japanese billionaire, Yusaku Maizawa. And I think there might well be more of that. There's a UBS report that suggests that there might be a significant amount of moon tourism by the end of this decade. On the other hand, there's some more deeper concerns on the territory itself, such as who owns it, property rights, resources, and law. How is that going to get decided? Probably by force majeure, um, but ideally um, by negotiation. There is already a body of law which says that no um, – and there's the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 – says that no nation can make a territorial claim on another celestial body. Um, but it is somewhere between silent and ambiguous on the question of whether private industry can because normally private industry can make property rights on the basis that the ability to do so is granted it by a sovereign government. The American government and the government of Luxembourg have both signed out saying that companies from America or Luxembourg can keep and use and profit from resources that they get in space. It's not clear that that really sits within the spirit of the Outer Space Treaty and it's not clear that it's a desirable outcome. And what about the rivalry a little bit closer to Earth and that is in the Earth's orbit and the proliferation of satellites? How is that going to affect space? There's no rivalry in low Earth orbit. The problem in low Earth orbit is that if you put too much stuff into it and some of that stuff hits other stuff, then you get too much debris. And one of the people who thinks a lot about this is an American called Brian Whedon, 
And Brian points out that space debris is a problem a little bit like climate change. By the time you realize that it's really a problem, it's too late to do stuff about it. It's a significant concern that a buildup of debris, in, especially in some parts of low Earth orbit, but maybe also in geostationary orbit where the satellite TV broadcast satellites sit, that could be an issue. And of course, if people start waging war in space and destroying each other's satellites, that creates more debris normally, and that could make the problem worse. Now, Oliver, we've talked about humans in space. We've talked about satellites. What about humans venturing beyond the moon to other places in the galaxy as well? Well, the galaxy is asking a little bit much. I mean, getting to the next planet in the solar system would be a hard enough reach. That's what Elon Musk wants to do. Elon Musk is quite clear about the idea that his next generation of spacecraft are meant to take people to Mars. Um, Again, this is an area where the law is extremely unclear about what can and can't be done. And there are people who have significant worries about the degree to which the Martian environment would be degraded by heedless settlement, to which a lot of backers of Mr. Musk would say, hell yes, that's the point. We want to go out there where the regulations don't matter. For scientific concerns, there is much to be learned about Mars that could be interesting, whether I don't think it would justify the really extremely high cost of going to Mars. I mean, going to Mars now would be a bit like going to the moon in the 1960s. To do a proper Mars mission would be to stretch well beyond the current capacities that people have in space. James Lovelock thinks that we're alone in the universe. What do you think? I think that there's an interesting point made by Arthur Clarke that the question of whether humans are alone in the universe is one to which both the answer yes and the answer no are equally extraordinary. Oliver, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And you can read more about what the next 50 years of exploration may hold in this week's edition of The Economist. If you like our journalism, take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radiooffer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next up, Facebook announced plans earlier this year for an oversight board that would review content that people post. The social media network has come under fire for failing to moderate extreme content shared on its site. But how do you moderate a platform that has over 2 billion active users? That is a question that Brent Harris hopes to answer. He is Facebook's director of governance. I met Mr. Harris at an event at Chatham House, the Royal Institute for International Affairs in London. And I started by asking him how this new form of internal regulatory body would work. What we're proposing with the Oversight Board is to create a group of experts from across the world who will bring independent judgment to hard cases and questions and make a determination after deliberation on what's the right answer? Is this something that belongs up on the platform or is this something that belongs down? And in the course of trying to figure out exactly what this institution should be, we've gone out around the world. We've talked to over 650 people through over 30 workshops and roundtables, people from over 88 countries, and also heard from 1,200 people via public submissions. This is a lot of people caring about the Oversight Board. What problem do you hope it to solve? So there are two things we're really hoping that the board will do. One is that we want to give people access to a process that is independent of Facebook, that allows them to say that the company didn't get it right and didn't actually live up to its standards and to its values in the case of very specific pieces of content. 
And then second, we believe that building that board, and we've actually seen this as we've piloted it, will strengthen how the system of content moderation is operating and spot issues and find that there are places where the policies uh, should, uh, should change or where the system could be stronger. As we add more regulation to any technology business, it always helps the incumbent. Always. We saw that with Bell Telephone. We saw that with Microsoft. And we're seeing it again with Facebook. How will there be room for startups to get into the business if we have this huge layer of regulation and, a stand- and an independent standards board that is a Supreme Court for digital content? Regulation really is about ensuring that the right outcomes happen on behalf of society. And so, in at least in, in our case, what we're looking for is is really setting a threshold and a floor to make sure that companies and institutions and products are able to operate in a way that lives up to that responsibility on behalf of wide numbers of people. Um, And so we think that really regulation is the right call. It's something that will help protect people across the world. And I'll note on the question of innovation, I don't think we're living in a world where less innovation is happening. We're actually living in one where it's accelerating. And people are out there every day coming up with a wide array of new product solutions that people are using. And it's resulting in a really fascinating and vibrant digital ecosystem. And what does independence look like in the Facebook age if it's an independent body? What we're looking for is people who are truly independent in judgment from the management of Facebook. So we want folks who are not tied to the business interests and business incentives of the company and who come come out there and actually overrule us and say, you know what, we got it wrong. We didn't live up to our standards or we didn't live up to our values. So the board is not going to be looking at everything. You have all these content moderators. What will it be doing? The board's going to look at some of the hardest cases. So it's going to look at cases that have a huge impact on that public dialogue about what should be allowed and what shouldn't. And it's also going to look at cases that are exemplars of larger issues at the boundaries of where the policy should be set. And in doing so, uh, it's going to help inform uh, what the rules of the internet look like. Okay, I'm a little bit nervous when you say the word exemplar, because that's sort of a euphemism for precedent. It sounds like as a Supreme Court, it's not simply adjudicating a specific case, but setting a wider set of norms and standards that the lower courts, if you will, the moderators would adhere to. Is that what's planned? The board's going to be binding on specific pieces of content and in the context of individual decisions. And in the course of doing that, and this is something we've really found through pilots, it's a powerful way of reviewing essentially the way that the company does this today. And it will then provide recommendations on policies and on content moderation that will inform how these systems play out across uh, over 2 billion users. Can you make me the Supreme Court, you know, Chief Justice of the Oversight Review Board? Because I would love the power. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think I, uh, I don't think I actually hold the power to make that decision. But uh, we're going to open up nominations, so uh, you should, uh, you should put your name in the ring. Perhaps I will, but I think I'd be compromised because I am a journalist. But the other way I'm compromised is I'm an American, I live in Europe, and I am born and bred with the First Amendment and this idea of information needing to be free and having a 
great, important ethos of public disclosure. These are norms and practices and values that aren't shared internationally. How do you balance the sort of very positive, free information, free flow of information ethos of the West with people from other traditions that don't actually have that appreciation? So what we're looking at is a set of principles that we've articulated, and those principles start with free expression and they start with voice, and that really is at the core of the products at a fundamental level. It's about how people communicate and come together. And we have a broader set of principles, and those principles uh, include safety and they include equity, and they reflect uh, a number of norms and and thinking that is uh, global and rooted in an ongoing dialogue that's happened around human rights principles and around international principles for decades. What happens if the board looks at, say, a user who says vile and disruptive things that are usually not true, and the board recommends that you throw the person off the platform, but the person is the president of the United States. What does Facebook do then? So the board will have binding authority over what content is allowed and what's not. So they're going to make the final call on on uh, on some of the hardest decisions. So Trump gets zucked. Brent Harris, thank you very much. Perfect. Thank you. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. And finally, we all know the expression to see red when we're angry. But some chemists think that we're not seeing red enough. They're on the hunt for a new red pigment, the reddest red yet. Cassia Sinclair is a cultural historian and the author of the book The Secret Lives of Color, an absolutely fantastic read. And she's here in the studio to tell us more. Hello, Cassia. Hello. Cassia, so first, what is wrong with the red pigment we have today? Well, reds are really tricky and always have been. They're very desirable. As human beings, we seem to love creating red things. But we've always had a little bit of a problem with very color fast and durable red pigments. So one of the sort of classics of um, the genre is cochineal, which is made out of bugs that are native to cactuses. But uh, more recently, the pigments that we've been using to, for example, coat cars haven't been as great as we might want them. They tend to turn chalky if exposed to too much light and air. There have been some developments. There's a, a famous red that is used on Ferraris, Ferrari red. But even that needs a little bit of protection with you. UV protective coatings that stop them becoming discoloured over time. So there is incredible demand for a red that could be more useful and is more durable outside. So what are we going to do about this crisis? How are we going to find a red that is durable? Well, it's not exactly a crisis, but it would be incredibly exciting and very valuable to create this new red. And so what is happening is that chemists are beginning to look for new sources. And one of the chemists who's 
really excited about this, excited about the opportunity, is actually famous for creating another colour. His name is Mas Subramanian. He's a chemist working out of the University of Oregon. And he is most famous for creating Yin Min Blue. And he's hoping he can repeat the trick with red. Why did we need a new blue? He wasn't actually looking for a blue when he found Yin Min Blue. It was created entirely by accident. He was trying to create a material with um, specific magnetic properties. And instead, one of his research students pulled something out of a furnace and it was bright blue. Now, Professor Mas Subramanian knew quite a lot about colour. He'd worked at DuPont for a long period of time. And so he knew that blues were very, very difficult to make. And when he saw this particular very bright, luminous blue, he thought, hang on a second, I might have created a gold mine. And it turned out to be fantastic. It created a huge buzz around colour and a huge buzz around his work. But having created this, as I said, by accident, it made him think about other gaps in the colour market. And that's when he happened upon reds. This is a show on science and technology, but I've got to ask, if I create a new colour, what do I get other than fame? Where's the fortune? So a lot of people don't realise that there can be a lot of money in reds. In fact, one sort of famous creator of the Ferrari red didn't really realise that there was money in this at all. He published his findings several decades ago. And in fact, the people who've made the money from Ferrari red are not the creators at all. They're people who spotted the commercial opportunity. Um, So once you've created your colour, you need to be quite smart about the rights and how you go about creating it. So now having achieved this great success and found green in blue, He wants to replicate that in red. What is he trying to do now? There are several different avenues that he and his team are looking at. One is looking at rubies, which are naturally red. But a problem with that approach is that rubies aren't a great pigment in and of themselves. So when you grind them down, the more finely they're ground, the paler the colour, which isn't what you want. What you want is a really bright, saturated red. So, you know, while they're hopeful that if something has sort of a similar structure to ruby, it might prove a better pigment, there are some problems with that approach. A second approach is looking at another kind of red pigment, which are sort of made out of metals um, like lead. At the moment, there are sort of great you know, lead-based reds, but they're quite toxic. So instead, they're looking at tin, and they're hoping that tin might prove a more valuable and stable source of red without the problems of toxicity. What is the technique that they're using to actually uncover these new colors? Is it all simply a matter of accident, like this Ying Min blue? Quite a lot of colours are found accidentally, like Prussian blue and the colour mauve, the dye mauve, uh, which was the very first aniline dye, was actually found by a chemist who was trying to make a cure for malaria. He never managed that in his career, but what he did give us was an entirely new colour. So I think they're quite realistic about being relatively free and maybe by sort of looking in the vague general direction, you know, thinking, okay, tin is close to lead on the periodic table, they might have some properties in common and they might also prove a rich source of reds. And this seems to be working. He told me that they've managed to create some very vivid saturated oranges, um, which is useful, but not quite the colour they're after. So they're going to keep on trying. Just so our listeners can visualise what this red will look like, imagine the Economist logo (laughs) 
How would it be different? It would be actually very uh, as red as the Economist logo. But the brilliant thing is that you could have it outside. You could paint your car with it. It would be cheaper and it would be more colour fast. You wouldn't be leaving your Economist logo outside in the sun and it would be turning a paler, pinker shade. I hate when that happens. <laughs> Cassia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week's Babbage. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukier. And in London, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.